If all you do is publish articles and videos talking about how the police are victims and how they're really stressed out and how they're tired of being criticized, mm-hmm. then how do you also stand with black people who have told you time and time again how the police harass them, how the police follow them? I've personally been followed by the police. You want to know what that's like as a black man? It's fucking terrifying. So I was at a store just on White Ave in Edmonton. And if you don't know White Ave in Edmonton, it's a pretty busy street, you know, filled with bars, filled with different stores. And I was just running an errand and I ran into a lady and I was just making a polite conversation. And she asked me, you know, what do you do? And I said, uh, I'm a freelance journalist. And um, she was like, oh, that's interesting. What are you writing about? And I told her, well, I'm writing about the police. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I'm not writing really, but like, (laughs) you get the point. And basically, we had a conversation around the police where she asked me, you know, a bunch of, you know, kind of leading questions about whether or not um, I was for defund or abolish. And basically, she asked me, you know, which side are you on? So, oh, dang. (laughs) Does she mean like on the side of uh, interpreting the police? brutality or writing on the deaths of people at the hands of the police like what does she mean by that she actually meant um whether or not she i was on the side of defunding the police or supporting the police so i had the uncomfortable situation of having to tell this random nice white lady in the store that uh i wanted to abolish Abolish. the police yeah yeah um right answer (laughs) Luckily for me, I, uh, I I work for a podcast now. That's that's all about that kind of stuff. So it's I, I, it's easier for me to answer these kind of questions. So I think I, I just tried to talk to her a little bit about how um, you know problems that come from policing aren't necessary, and that you know this is something that Ray Cash Walters, who we talked to a lot for this podcast. Um, said in a panel that she was giving um, and talking about how, you know, as community members, it's up to us to protect each other and ourselves and that it might seem radical to say this, but if we actually do care about each other, we can live in a world where we don't need um, to pay our city $300 million for what is essentially 24-hour surveillance and a monopoly on violence with almost no consequences when things go bad. So I think putting the responsibility on the community members themselves to realize that... Giving um, them that power. Yeah, no, really giving Mm -hmm. them that power um, to realize that, yeah, it's possible to live in a world without the police. Yeah, so I got involved in just doing research because I was just interested in data, uh, figuring out numbers, knowing stats for when I do want to make arguments with people about uh, whether it be, you know, how much schooling money is going into uh, police institutions or the lack of funding in each district, uh, in our not just our city, but throughout our country, right? So it finally, like, elevated into doing research for policy briefs, trying to figure out uh, what the rationale is behind these decisions in, in funding, right? And the effects of what the funding will entail. Uh, but currently, you know, as even as a law student and I'm doing research to figure out and understand how wide-scale police brutality is, you, you run into this huge obstacle, which is the media, right? Like, the media is kind of that... F- gateway keeper in when you're trying to figure out how many cases has happened in police brutality or police violence and it's kind of hard when you have to google search officer involved shooting um to get those searches and then you from there you have to kind of filter out and figure out you know was this an officer being called to a shootout or was this an officer responding to domestic violence like is someone dead from the officer shooting is officer the one that's perpetrating this violence so it's just been very difficult to interpret media and it slowly became into like press releases because of the wording that was used um and you know omar you worked in journalism i i I think this is one thing we always like to talk about how how not just your journey into well what you're doing now but 
How was it working as a journalist and seeing this neutral stance that that takes place when words like forcibly entered should be used or, you know, when even a weapon, when weapon is used in um, these articles, a weapon could be a needle, a weapon could be a chair. Like, what was the weapon? They don't hesitate mm-hmm. to use the word gun. We, we know that. Mm-hmm. So wh- how has it been for you working in media and seeing this, this uh, weird neutral dance i guess with trying not to call the cops out on killing a human being you know being the judge jury and executioner um Mm -hmm. i i've been lucky enough uh to work in media for the past couple of years um and it's been really interesting to have conversations about how journalism is failing canadians in a lot of ways um and in, in my case, personally, I know directly the impacts of how journalism fails black Canadians because it failed me mm-hmm. personally. And it's not something I think that bothers me as much as it used to, but I think that it's still a problem that I think should be confronted and addressed. So there is something uh, that I think everyone should be aware of when they look into the media is how language is used in the media. So there is something that's, you know, a term called journalese, which is, I think, appropriate to apply to the language that journalists use when they write stories. So when you see a typical news story, there is a very specific structure and there's very specific rules for the kind of language that's used. The phrase that Hanan, you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. officer involved shooting, this is something that was, you know, really fabricated and made to make it look like the police are some kind of neutral actors that, you know, a shooting just happened. An officer was just involved and that's kind of it. So when you look at a lot of police coverage from major publications, I'm talking CBC Edmonton. I'm talking global news, chorus entertainment, which we'll mention later. I'm talking CTV Edmonton, City News. Um, You know, there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's a few really big players. Uh, Edmonton Journal, uh, Edmonton Sun. So all of these publications have a very, how do I say this, unique relationship with the police. I don't think there is any other institution that is treated as kindly and given as many favors as the police. So I'm saying that journalists treat the police very kindly, and the coverage shows that. And honestly, I I agree. I think even if it's not kindness in the sense of favors or anything like that, like we can really notice the lack of scrutiny, right? So you know, you read coverage on political institutions, healthcare, you name it, uh, you know, safe consumption sites even. You you see the, the language of them uh, purposefully saying this is the harm done by this institution in this type of situation. You see race analysis, you see connections with previous issues that has arised in that institution, right? So connecting these examples and leading to like an overall conclusion of there needs to be something that needs to be addressed, right? So we don't see that with coverage in police media, at least in my own research. I, I've yet to come across uh, language unless um, it's used when someone that is white dies from police brutality. Uh, yeah, and I think it's also important to recognize that uh, bad reporting has consequences, You know, um, when a story is published that depicts a black person as a criminal, as a thug, as someone who is guilty before proven innocent in a court of law, um, that is negatively impacting the image of all black people. And you may not feel like it is, but there, there is a very clear pattern where black victims of police brutality or black people generally are assumed guilty before proven innocent. And stories clearly lack the perspective that's needed and are clearly biased towards the police. So I think this is a good transition to walk into one of my personal favorite podcasts. I 
discovered this podcast a while ago. It was recommended by a friend, and I think everyone should listen to it. It's called Citations Needed, and we'll just play a little clip for you here just to give you an example of the kind of conversation that they had in their sixth episode. Uh, it was released in 2017, and it's called The Media's Default Setting of White Supremacy. So that might sound a little bit inflammatory for some people, but if you listen to that episode, there are very powerful things that are said that I think predicted many of the situations that we are in today because of George Floyd's murder and how it was captured. What are the real consequences? How does the media manipulate those murders? How does the media create a situation where we view victims as perpetrators and perpetrators as victims. You notice certain patterns. I think the, the way police shootings are covered is probably, you know, maybe almost more bullshit per square meter than anything else. And, and a it's lot of it packed. is very subtle. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an incredibly sophisticated language regime, which we'll mm -hmm. get into, that is there to prop up white supremacy, the, the police department narrative. And to ameliorate victim smearing and, 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 and shaming, and, 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 and to generally yeah. ameliorate the kind of middle class yeah. bourgeois morality, the media works not only to um, defend like a racist status quo and to and to blame victims of police killings, but also, namely, to to protect police. It's not only to then blame the victims; it's also really to protect cops. One of the first ways they do this is through language. They do this through what's called cop speak, which is to say the way police talk about quote unquote, police matters is internalized by the media in an almost pathological way. And this is especially true of local media and kind of beat crime reporters who are typically um, very myopic in how they approach crime. So they basically act as police stenographers. Let's start, for example, one of our favorite cliches, which we've all heard a thousand times, which is officer-involved shooting. News, an officer-involved shooting in Newport News. With new developments and a deadly officer-involved shooting in Muskogee, police have now... Breaking news, police have confirmed there's been an officer-involved shooting at Torrey Pines High School. This happened just after... This is a brilliant turn of phrase because it removes the guilt of the party. Mm -hmm. when, a, when a police officer shoots someone, officer-involved shooting, it doesn't actually say who does the shooting or who doesn't do the shooting. And so another tactic they use is to use vague or obscure language... Um, actually, in Israel, a lot they use it too. Well, they'll say, you know, two Palestinians die after clashes with protesters. Mm -hmm. um, this is a much more sanitized way of saying that two IDF soldiers shot two Palestinians. Right. So it's the idea of clashes or the idea of altercations, mm -hmm. the idea of a fight. Um, the most egregious example that of that always then justifies well, reactionary it, it, police violence because it obscures responsibility. Exactly. It's like saying in that specific case where you have a, a militarized police force, you have soldiers, you have F-22s. It's like saying there was a, you know, clashes between a hammer and a nail or clashes mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. the elephant and the grass. It's, yeah. it doesn't evoke the asymmetry of power, of power sure. which of course is precisely the point. Manisha is a journalist with Vice uh, Canada and came out with this groundbreaking uh, article basically dissecting what happened uh, to a lot of people of color journalists that were being outward with the discrimination they were experiencing in their in their work. Um, and I think it, it was groundbreaking in the sense that it was Canadian media reporting on can racist Canadian media, uh, what they're doing to their own employees, right? Uh, for me, you rarely see anything of that nature because of the backlash that, you know, Manisha will talk about in her interview later. But it, it was it was outstanding uh, that, you know, you had this person in this immense position of uh, privilege and power to write this empowering piece for a lot of people. And like M Manisha did experience backlash on this, didn't she, Omar? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was pretty uh, interesting to see the fallout of this, especially knowing how secretive a lot of Canadian media is and knowing how difficult it is to get a job as a journalist in Canada. Uh, it's, it's very, very, very competitive. And um, I think it's a situation that uh, you find yourself in as a black journalist and the indigenous journalist um, is if someone does something racist to you at work or you think that racism is rampant in your workplace... Um, what, what do you do about it? Because upper management of Canadian media is entirely white. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. No. So quick essentially, yeah, it's a very quick search. You can find it. And essentially, um, they haven't taken this issue seriously. Most 
accusations of racism are trumped up to lies. You're told that you're confused or you're misinterpreting the situation. And in Manisha's case, when you, you know, systematically report instances of bias, clear instances of racism, and you accuse a company of, you know, fostering this kind of behavior, publishing racist stories that are very biased towards uh, white perspectives without including, um, you know, balanced voices, and then also falling back on journalistic standards and practices that you've clearly broken with previous racist coverage. Um, the situation that she had to go through with Global is a really unfortunate situation, and all the employees who complained about it, um, as you'll find out later, um, it didn't really end well for them. From your perspective, you've been someone who's been very vocal about Global and Chorus specifically, and this dates back to even before you published your article. So do you mind telling me what your relationship with um, Global is and like how it started and what you started noticing um, about their racism? I really only remember criticizing them in, in relation to their coverage, it was following George Floyd's death and the protests. And it was because they had asked for the view of Canadians who were living in the States, but these were, you know, white Canadians um, who were commenting on how the protesting was making them uneasy um, and, you know, kind of saying that it should be done in the proper way. The story also intercha interchangeably used protest and riot, which is obviously problematic for its own reasons. Um, and so I had called out that story and that story Global actually later unpublished it. Um, and then later on down the line, when I was doing my investigation, uh, I found out that a bunch of employees internally had flagged that story, had had multiple conversations with managers about that story, um, you know, sent emails as well, uh, just explaining why it was prob why they felt it was problematic. Um, and you know, what I learned was that there were twelve people who signed an email flagging that story, and half of those people were later laid off. That really is the crux of your story, is how all these people who criticized their, their bosses and their colleagues were, you know, laid off, essentially. So do you want to maybe tell people what the, those journalists were working on and what was the circumstances around the layoffs and what happened after? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say that I don't know how many people Global laid off in total because they haven't revealed that. Um, but there's more than 20 for sure that I was able to, um, you know, figure out. And so Global positioned it as we're pivoting away from lifestyle on the website and we're going to focus on objective, you know, fact-based journalism. And that, um, you know, the wording of that is interesting because the lifestyle team was actually doing quite a bit of coverage around race, you know, for example, um, health disparities for black people. Uh, you know, there was a investigation into sexual misconduct that focused on a woman of color, um, you know, things to do investigations to do with policing, uh, violence against women. And then, um, you know, the wait, there's more podcasts, the team behind that. They often took on race. Um, my friend Tamara Kendacker is the host of that, and she actually had me on the show to talk about the troubles faced by journalists of color, um, you know, before she was laid off. So it's interesting that Global uh, publicly or, you know, positioned this as a move towards objective fact-based journalism when you know, the reality is these reporters were really trying to amplify racialized voices. And it seemed from what I gathered, they were actually internally sort of looked at as a bit of a model for how to diversify your sources. So it's interesting that Global 
publicly is saying we're doing all this stuff um, on race. You know, we're we're hired a firm to investigate our culture. And then they sort of laid off a lot of the people who were doing the heavy lifting and doing that work. Why do you think that white journalists use these terms like fact-based journalism, like objectivity? Why is this used constantly to either discredit journalists of color who are doing work that criticizes mainstream journalism or used to uphold, you know, white journalists' work as somehow more um, objective or, you know, more reliable? Well, I think that for a long time, you know, going right into J school and even before that, there's been this really strong orthodoxy around this idea of objectivity and, you know, being distant from the story. Um, And I think that because the the press has, you know, largely been run by white people and white men. Um, I think that the default of this objectivity uh, has has essentially come to mean, you know, or can mean, I guess I should say, um, a, a white male or a white lens viewed through a white lens. So when it comes to POC wanting to cover stories in their community, wanting to call out racism and cover racism, um, you know, then you, we get told that we're too close to the story, we can't be objective. Um, and so I think that came up in this investigation in a number of ways, but one of the ways actually was when I sent Chorus my list of questions, Troy Reeb, who's the executive vice president of broadcast networks, actually emailed my editor, my white editor, um, and basically said to him, you know, there's ethical concerns around your reporter doing the story because she has demonstrated that she has a bias, basically. And it was, you know, he screenshotted tweets where I was critical of that story that I just mentioned. Um, And so it's interesting that we're having all these discussions around objectivity and, you know, is that really being used to to silence journalists of color or to silence, you know, um, racialized stories. Uh, And in the midst of that conversation, Chorus actually sort of used that tactic to try to discredit me. So this this is a tweet of you criticizing an article. I think journalists generally are people who encourage criticism. We have columnists who are very white in Canada, whose entire job it is to, you know, criticize everything, you know, criticize the food we eat, criticize the music we listen to. Yet when a journalist of color decides to criticize a company, that's immediately used against them. And I think there are so many other instances in your article and your other reporting where journalists of color complain about something and then immediately their complaints are used to say, oh, you're making us uncomfortable, or, oh, we're actually dealing with this properly, or, oh, um, here's a black person that says, or here's a person of color that says, I, we're actually the white people are fine and we're doing a great job. So can you talk about some of these tactics that are used to kind of like take the criticism and then just like spin it back and just say, no, actually you're the wrong one or no, you're causing something bad here. Yeah, definitely. One of the concerns that came up from the sources that I talked to was that many of them felt like they were being gaslit by the company when they would raise concerns. So, you know, one example I can give you is in the, in the meetings with, Uh, management over this problematic story, Um, you know, these these journalists were raising their concerns and the managers continuously use language like, well, we don't want this to become an us and them issue, you know, or I I have trouble when it's management this and the company that, you know, I struggle with that, Um, you know, or even saying that the white reporter who had published that original piece was feeling attacked and she was feeling unsupported. And actually that journalist, I reached out to her for comment and she she basically confirmed that to me, that she was upset that her colleagues 
had raised this story with management. Um, the other one, I think you mentioned it, I uh, had a source who was called into HR and they were told that they were making white people uncomfortable by constantly challenging racism within the newsroom. Um, you know, there was another, another, call, uh, another producer who I talked to who said that, you know, they were called into a meeting because they declined a white colleague's help. And I, you know, their perception, her perception of this was that the co that white colleague just didn't like her tone essentially. And so there was a meeting over it. Um, so these are all just examples that, you know, illustrate how uh, people started to really feel worn down. Um, you know, they felt like they were raising these concerns and that these tactics were being used to sort of dismiss them or to wear them down. I guess for listeners who aren't familiar with Canadian journalism or, you know, what a newsroom would look like, um, do you mind describing where some of these incidents took place? You know, what cities they're in? And I guess from your experience working in newsrooms, um, what kind of environments are these places? What kind of people um, get jobs there? And who really thrives and who doesn't in those kind of environments? I don't believe a diversity audit has ever been done at Chorus. And in fact, several employees told me that they requested one last year um, after someone made a blackface joke on set. Uh, and basically the company refused to do one at that time. But what I can tell you is that Chorus's uh, leadership team is almost entirely white. So both their board of directors and their um, executive leadership is mostly white people. I think there's maybe one POC. Um, and so, you know, in general, the newsrooms are really white. I mean, you know, I, I've worked in, in several different newsrooms in Toronto, as well as in Alberta, um, you know, and and back home in Vancouver. Uh, and most newsrooms are, are very white and, and they get whiter the higher you go up the chain, you know, to the point where the sort of the editorial boards, um, you know, the management position, senior management is often almost exclusively white people. Um, and so I think, you know, from my own experiences, I can say that that can be challenging in, in different ways. But one of the ways is that if you're a young racialized journalist and you want to raise stories that are about racism and your editors are, you know, all white people um, who maybe don't really have an understanding of those issues, who maybe don't necessarily care, don't think it's a great story. Um, you know, I've had that happen a lot. And you really internalize that and you really start thinking like, maybe I'm not a great journalist, maybe my ideas suck. Um, and the reality is that's not true. It's just that there's not, you know, there's not enough people in the, in the decision-making and the assigning positions um, who, are, who are POC and who sort of want to champion these issues. And, and I, I do hope that that's starting to change. I think there is certainly a lot more coverage now. Um, and I hope that we can just keep going with that momentum. When the media is predominantly white and stories get written from that perspective, and that problem festers for years and never really gets resolved. What do you think is the impact on um, the readers? Well, they're not, they're not getting the full story um, of what's going on in their communities. I mean, you know, the degree to which white people have been shocked by police brutality this year really tells you something because police brutality is not new. Um, you know, this has been going on for so long. Black people, indigenous people have been talking about this issue, have been talking about their experiences. There's been reports done. Um, and so, you know, I'm not totally sure why at this particular moment, there seems to be an awakening happening. But part of the issue is definitely 
the press sort of not having been covering this issue and also being deferential to authorities and being deferential to police. So what I mean by that is when an incident happens and police put out, you know, their version of what happened, let's say that one of their officers killed someone, uh, in, in which case they actually may say nothing at all. Um, but, you know, in, in, in other cases where they do say something, it's accepted as fact, like their narrative is accepted as fact. And I think that we as journalists, we don't actually accept as fact, you know, things that the government tells us, we challenge those things. Um, we are we are taught to be skeptical. And so I'm not sure why that hasn't really applied to our treatment of police up until right now. But that is, you know, one instance where I think the readers certainly are not getting the full scope of the story. It's just really hard because the thing that gets me the most is the people who just had to deal with like blatant racism and never saw justice and got denied so many opportunities. And, you know, th this was like pretty recent too for a lot of people. It's still happening today. And, you know, what are the consequences? Like, that's what really bothers me is that like people, like, I guess the, 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 the president of global did step down, but like, no, no, um, oh. no, just Jill crop, who is the news director in BC is resigning, but oh. so far no one else has. She's the only one. Yeah. Yeah. And she's not in the, like, she's not in the top leadership team or anything like that. Um, wow. So yeah. And, and so far, as far as what I know, anyway, Chorus has not addressed the allegations internally and um, you know, with Jill Crop's resignation, of course, we don't know why she resigned. She did resign the day after my story published. But Global sent out, you know, a pretty glowing review of her career, um, you know, talking about how she was a veteran journo and she was a caring mentor to people in her newsroom. And other media, like the Vancouver Sun, for example, picked up on that and just went ahead and published it. Didn't mention my investigation, didn't mention any of the concerns that were raised about her behavior. Um, and I think that is actually another issue. And, and it's not my ego saying this. I, I promise it's not. It's not like, oh, I want, I want other journalists to be, you know, uh, aggregating my story and, and, and picking up on it because of my ego. But I did find it interesting that the Vancouver Sun, you know, didn't even mention it um, and, you know, didn't really get picked up by other media. I do think that if I had written the story in the U.S. about like CBS or something, other media would have picked up on it. And so the issue you have when that doesn't happen um, is that it's, I think it's easier for companies to sort of ignore, you know, just brush one story under the rug. It's fine. It'll blow over. Um, but when you have other journalists like looking into, into things and picking up on certain threads, then you can kind of maybe get some momentum going and maybe get some pressure, you know, to, to make real change. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, though, in Canadian media, we don't have a tradition of doing that. We don't have a tradition of calling ourselves out. Uh, there's very much a secrecy culture here. And, you know, a lot of that ties back to people's fears about job security, right? They don't want to, mm -hmm. they don't want to condemn someone that they may want to work for in a couple of years. Um, so it's falling on a lot of women of color. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of the ones who've been calling out their former employers in various essays that we've seen over the summer um, and Twitter threads. And that's a risky move, you know? It's a very small industry. There are very few, like, really good opportunities. So putting your neck out there and speaking out against your former employer is really something else. Like, I don't, people need to understand, like, how much yeah. of a risk it is because everyone speaks to each other. Like you said, the Vancouver Sun, Post Media and Global, of course, different companies, but they obviously have something in common, you know, obviously white, you know, corporate executives. So they get together and their interests are the same. So 
if you criticize one, you're almost criticizing all of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of the issues that were outlined in my story are applicable to other newsrooms, probably most other newsrooms, to be honest. Um, and so I'm sure that the leadership teams there are sort of watching what's going on at other news organizations. And also they're obviously going to be looking at who, who are the ones who are, you know, the troublemakers, who are the ones who are calling things out right now. Um, I would love to be able to say that I feel secure and I, I feel like, oh, um, you know, yeah, I can just report on these stories and there's not ever going to be any career repercussions for me. But I don't feel that way. I do feel like, um, you know, there might be repercussions for me and, and I'm privileged. I, I do have a full-time job, to be clear, and I have no reason to believe that that's in any jeopardy right now. Um, but there's other people who are really putting their necks out there um, and, you know, maybe aren't, don't have a full-time gig right now. Um, you know what I mean? Or maybe you want to leave. And so you just never know how these things will, will potentially come back. When I first read this piece, I, I was stunned because, I mean, everyone always talks about how the media is biased, whether you're right-winged or left-wing. Everyone knows that there's a bias there, um, especially people that aren't represented at all. Like, how, how are we represented? How was our opinions even there if we're not even writing or having our stories told properly, right? So uh, when I read this, I was stunned. You know, this is, to me, one of the first call-out pieces uh, ever. Uh, I was also shocked that not a lot of coverage was given to that piece, that, uh, you know, Canadian media wasn't standing up and saying, okay, whoa, we, we got to take a step back here and actually listen. Yeah. What really bothers me is that, um, how do I say this? Now that George Floyd was murdered, Black Lives Matter is all of a sudden an acceptable thing to say. Mm-hmm. In 2016 and 2015, that was not the case. Uh, people who were very liberal were arguing against Black Lives Matter. All Lives Matter was a very acceptable thing to say. That has completely changed, and uh, I think Canadian media has a lot of soul-searching to do because if major publications are going to say that they want to support Black people, I think they should also reckon with the fact that they've published you know, a lot of racist articles and that they've also published a lot of things that are, you know, very disrespectful towards black people. Um, and I think this isn't something that's, you know, uh, this isn't something that's limited to white reporters. And I think that when conversations about race are had, a lot of the times people feel guilty because they think that it's always pointing the finger at something that they can't control. You know, no one controls what race they're born with. But this goes really deeper than that. And this is how media really, um, media is used to help people who have a lot of power and a lot of money continue to have a lot of power and a lot of money. And in this case, those people are the police. And the media helps the police keep their power and keep their money using biased coverage of black people, using techniques to make you sympathize with police officers. And unfortunately, Hanan, we have clear examples of this happening in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we were having this conversation earlier how, you know, our own police refer to America or say south of the border is where these issues stem from and they're suffering the brunt of it. And it's just really frustrating for them to not connect that. Like it was just two months ago that the RCMP for Alberta was saying systemic racism doesn't exist. Like we don't know what it is. And then they do a Google search and the next day they're yeah. like, voila. When, when George we Floyd happened, the, the National Post, one of Canada's biggest publications, decided to let one of their biggest columnists, Rex, Rex Murphy, published an article saying Canada doesn't have systematic racism. You know, I would love for Rex Murphy to sit across from me at a table, look at me in the eyes, and tell me that Canada does not have any systematic racism. If he can do that with a straight face, and then 
listen to the story of my life and how you know I <laughs> like mm-hmm. like the the the. It, the amount of things that I've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wish these things were made up. These things are very traumatic. These things make you feel like you're lesser than other people in the community. It's designed to, yeah. Yeah, it's designed to make black people feel bad for being black. And I think fundamentally that's what racism is about. It's about making white people feel good about being white and making black people feel bad about the color of their skin and really flipping it so that the victim feels... Um, guilty. In a white supremacist society, black victimization is necessary. Yeah. What a good way to summarize that. Honestly, it's to me, it was just really frustrating that the conversation for Canada at the time was, is systemic racism real? Like, do we have racism here? Or here's this person here to tell us, a panelist that will tell us that but, there is no racism. And it was just a huge slap in the face to be a black person that, you know, is trying to find research and knowledge on this subject. And the only thing that you can find is officer-involved shooting, being paraphrased around the concept of we can't connect this with systemic racism because we aren't sure if there's systemic racism. Canada claims to be a multicultural society, yet somehow all of our mainstream media thinks that systematic racism doesn't exist. And I only say that because that was their first reaction when they saw a video of a black man being murdered for eight minutes in America. They decided that the best thing to publish in all their opinion columns was systematic racism doesn't exist in Canada. There has to be a differentiation between the tragedy of this event and then the policies we have in place. And I'm sorry, I reject the prime minister insinuating that all Canadians are somehow racist because our system is systemically racist. It is not. Our system is was, built. Do you think he was saying that every Canadian yes. is racist? No, why why no, did you take I, that? I, I said suggesting when he talks about systemic racism in our system, the Canadian system is built and every day functions to defend the rights of minorities. And it should. And we celebrate that. But if you perpetuate, even in media, only one side of a story, then you're going to get the wrong reaction from Canadians. Chief Dale McPhee was hired to bring about changes within the EPS. And what a lot of people might not know is that work was already happening before the summer of protests. Now, some of those changes include building better relationships with social agencies for better societal outcomes. Here's part of our conversation with the chief. You know, June was a month of big change in the tone of conversation, a big change in the conversation. What's life been like since June? I think, to, to be honest with you, obviously policing's taking it on the chin, and uh, our frontline members uh, often are the blunt of that. And uh, I just want to first acknowledge how proud I am as, uh, as the obviously the chief of just how we've responded to that. We, you know, we've backed off when we needed to back off. We haven't uh, uh, moved away from our jobs to keep our, our community safe at the same time. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, we've uh, took the blunt of a lot of things that happened thousands of miles away. Not that we don't need to make some changes, absolutely. But I think uh, first and foremost, it's been tough. Chief McPhee says now is a good time for change and suggests focusing on four to five things in the overall system. And he points out bluntly that anyone looking for an overnight fix into utopia he says that that won't happen. Vinash Pratap, Global News. If all you do is publish articles and videos talking about how the police are victims and how they're really stressed out and how they're tired of being criticized, mm-hmm. then how do you also stand with black people who have told you time and time again how the police harass them, how the police follow them? I've personally been followed by the police. You want to know what that's like as a black man? It's fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. I have never been as scared as I was when I had a fucking cop car tailing me and basically all to ask me a question about whether or not someone was smoking behind me. This is before uh, cannabis was legal or anything was legal in Canada. It's a terrible situation to find yourself in. And it's very scary. It's hard to explain to people who aren't victimized by the police what that situation feels like. But we give these people $300 million and we're supposed to trust them. And the media says that they're really good. So we should just all, I guess, go home. 
it's it's just really frustrating like you would think with any kind of service you're entitled to being like questioning that service and saying okay how is the service functioning how do we improve this service is this service useful i think those questions should just be grounded in every single institution that are taxpayer dollars fund and if those questions aren't being raised you need to ask yourself are you really neutral so this episode omar i mean it probably resonated with you more than any other because not only are we talking about police that you have all this experience with but journalism and how so a career that you love something that you really want to do uh how it's being used as like a, a shield maybe rather than a sword when talking about this this issue what what are your thoughts yeah i don't know i i just feel like i'm disappointed um it's one of those things where <laughs> it's a funny situation and um you know you know how you go in the job interviews and how you know there's protocol where you don't you know talk disparagingly about your former employer that's basically what this entire podcast is oh, you know man. that like essentially <laughs> yeah, this what yeah, it is yeah. it's like i'm talking badly about people who used to pay me to write news articles about mm -hmm. the police um and i think there is a certain expectation for journalists, but it's always unspoken. Um, and the saddest part is that when you're black, uh, white people don't like speaking to you. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily get in all the nice rules and mm -hmm. how do you know figure out how to carve your way into this industry. And it's hard enough to find a job even if you're not black. So I think that um, I reached a point where I had just had enough. Um, and I think you know, nobody should let their career define who they are. And I realized that for myself. So when I realized that, I felt okay with it. But it was a very tough thing to let go of because I'd worked for basically five years to reach the point where I could maybe apply for a few jobs as a journalist. But uh, in January 2020 and February, I knew that there was no opportunity. COVID didn't help the situation. No, so, it didn't. Yeah, the podcast really... I think was my, yeah, my last real chance of trying to do journalism. And even now that the podcast is kind of happening, um, I don't know if I'll ever return to a newsroom again. I don't know if any newsroom will even want me to return. Oh, man, I don't think what? they do. <laughs> I don't Are think anyone me? wants to work with me. But at the same time, um, I'm, I'm happier because I think the work that I'm doing now is closer to the truth. Those are, those are the actual skills that should be on a CV for a journalist. I don't know about you viewers, but to me, I think the person whose article I'm reading should be someone who has those qualities, that is trying to push for truth, that is willing to call out their boss, willing to write an article about other people it's calling out their boss. Since when did media now become government news releases yeah, or police news no, releases? No, it's I just... I don't think, you know, it's, it's just... Journalism is... It never, I think, was what people claim it is. And I think that you really have to look at the past to find the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, look at Edmonton Media for what it is, not what you want it to be, but for what it actually is. And I think if you look at it for what it is, you'll realize that it's very conservative and you'll realize that it's unnecessarily that way. And that we don't need to talk about these issues this way. And that we can critically challenge the fact that our city spends more money on surveilling us and policing us than caring for basically anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem. If you don't think that's a problem, well, I think it's worth debating. But um, yeah, that's what this whole podcast is with about. With Omar, not me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to debate my, my human rights with you. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, we shouldn't debate our human rights, but this is the point we've gotten to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, for sure. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I really I really think Patreon has enabled us to keep going the way we're going, right, with our vision. And, you know, for the next few episodes, we want to hear from you, Patreon members. So if you follow us on Instagram or if you follow us on Twitter, if you can send us the DMs, voice notes of why. Why do you why do you support the podcast? Or even answer this question. Do you think your human rights are be like worth debating on or is this something that should just be critically scrutinized because 
you know, it involves your human rights. Mm-hmm. So answer any of those two questions and me and Omar would love to to play your responses in our next co-host chat because this this episode was really hard to produce. Um, we faced a lot of barriers. We It was hard to reach out to people and then, you know, have them speak critically of their employers. Like, who's going to do that? No one, especially if you're a journalist. So we, we get you, journalist peeps. We get you. But it it's just been really frustrating having these barriers and then trying to navigate them and I'm just so grateful for Omar because he's had he's had that experience. He comes in with this wealth of knowledge of how journalism was his dream and his passion. And I really hope it still is because he's really good at it. But how these barriers just broke down the whole thing for him. And it's really frustrating uh, to see that. And and I think it's important also to say that, like, this isn't about me I, I think I'm going to be fine. I don't think <laughs> yeah. that, um, you know, my life is going to be terrible. I'm, I think I'm, it's going to be fine. Nothing wrong is going to happen. This is about the fact that these barriers are put in place intentionally mm-hmm. to, you know, help certain people and hurt certain people. And it just so happens that, you know, in Canada, we help a lot of white people and we hurt a lot of black people and we hurt a lot of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everyone is okay with that. I think everyone is okay with that oh because boy. if they weren't okay with it, I think they would probably be acting on it a little bit more. I think people wouldn't just show up for one protest or one March and then say that they've done enough. I think that this action needs to be continuous. And we think that the podcast is necessary. This is why we created it because we knew that Black Lives Matter would probably not last until the American election. Bashir mentioned that, and he was completely right. And we knew that we needed to keep a sustained amount of pressure so that these issues aren't just viewed as trivial, as they've always been viewed as. So yeah, I just want to end the episode today by thanking all of our listeners, um, anyone who supported the podcast and also thanking Manisha for being kind enough to talk with me. And um, yeah, we'll see you in October. Yes, we will.